are reading from Luke chapter 4, commencing at verse 16, reading through to verse 30. So Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning. Welcome. Um, I don't know where you are. Perhaps you're in bed with a cuppa. That's how I picture many of you. Um, But isn't the internet a fascinating thing? Uh, And one of the things I like to watch on the internet is TED Talks. They're these really sharp, quick 15, 20-minute presentations from experts who kind of summarize their research into something that's kind of uh, all in one block. Um, And, you know, talks by, say, Jordan Peterson or Brene Brown or Simon Sinek, and they just kind of cut straight to the heart of the matter. And these guys are just able to say some profound things very succinctly. You might say you could learn from them, Dave. Um, But um, I find their talks amazing, but I don't become a disciple and a follower of Jordan Peterson or Simon Sinek. It's one thing to be amazed at somebody's teachings. It's another thing to follow somebody and the disciples will follow Jesus all the way to their own death. Well, Jesus is going to teach today uh, in his own hometown and what kind of response is he going to get? Uh, Join with me as we kind of walk our way through this passage in our last sermon in this series um, looking at the first year of Jesus' public ministry 
the year of inauguration. So I'm just going to read through the scripture. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So in Luke's gospel, we get uh, Jesus' birth narratives. Then we get the transition with his baptism. Then we get the temptation in the desert. And Luke reads as if Jesus then... uh, returns immediately to Galilee, and then we get this incident in his hometown in Nazareth. It's not quite the case, uh, because as we read on, um, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. There's actually quite some gap of time between... Jesus preaching at his home synagogue and his commencement of public ministry. And he has been teaching actually in all of the synagogues in the northern region, in the region of Galilee, right? He taught in this synagogues and everyone's amazed. In fact, a little later in this instant, Jesus will say, Surely you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. What did Jesus do in Capernaum? Well, Jamie preached on that last week. In Mark's gospel, the incident where Jesus heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and then after that, people from all Capernaum come to Jesus that evening, and he heals many. Um, And then the next day, there's stacks of them at the door and Peter's really excited, except Jesus has gone off to pray. And uh, Jesus actually decides, hang on, there's too many people here. And and he goes to other towns. Uh, Jesus has been wandering around and uh, is popular and renowned as a great teacher and a healer. And we're beginning to transition into this year of popularity. But today's passage is the transition moment. But Jesus is well known. He has a reputation. And uh, the people of his home village are kind of like, wow, our sort of local rock star who's coming good is coming back to town. What's going to happen? Well, everyone uh, is at the synagogue. It's a Sabbath. Um, He went to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. Let me just say something about that verse. That's a significant verse. Jesus has been in public ministry now for close to a year, and it's his custom to go to the synagogue every Sabbath. Sometimes uh, some Christians have this image of Jesus as kind of like this, left field radical who is against the institutional church um i I wonder if you've seen that picture of shay javara jesus right uh jesus is this radical who's critical and judgmental of the church he's outside of the institution he's wandering around the desert and he's kind of throwing rocks at the organized church and and no that's not the case What we read here is that Jesus is in the habit of going to the synagogue every Sabbath. And we're also going to discover that God's people gathering together, reading the scripture, hearing it expounded, encouraging one another, 
is an established practice of the Jews and the early church, and it's right for us to keep those practices as habits. So Jesus is in his home synagogue, um, uh, and he stood up to read. So Jesus has been invited to read. He's, he now holds the status of, of a rabbi. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written. So uh, if you go to uh, a synagogue, uh, what you'll get is kind of a hole in the wall and a locked box. And in there are the scrolls. And the scrolls are kept safe for two reasons. One is they're honored, they're precious. The second is they're incredibly valuable. Uh, it takes a long time for somebody, a scribe, to copy out um, a, a biblical book. You've got to hand copy it uh, and you've got to be accurate and you don't want to make any mistakes. And the Jews were meticulous about this stuff. And so it's locked up and it's pulled out on the Sabbath and it's handed to Jesus. And there are many scrolls in there. Perhaps you can't even fit Isaiah on just one scroll. Uh, and one particular scroll is given to Jesus. So does Jesus choose this passage or is it the set reading for the day? And the answer is we don't actually know. Um, Jesus can't just choose any passage out of the Old Testament and jumps to this one uh, because he's given that particular scroll. But we do read um, he found the place where it is written. Now, did he find that because he chose it or did he find that because that was the set reading for the day? We're not sure. Um, but this is the passage that Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. I, I just got to pause here. Already twice in this reading, we've heard the Spirit. Uh, and in the first reading, in the first verse of uh, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And now we're reading that Jesus is saying, The Spirit is on me. In Luke's gospel, the spirit is very important. Uh, Jesus doesn't conduct any ministry, any significant event. The spirit is always noted as being present. And it flows on from Jesus' baptism. There's something about Jesus' public ministry that means it has to be spirit-empowered for it to be effective. And that is just affirmed once again here. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Even though Jesus is the Son of God, somehow he still needs the Spirit of God to activate his public ministry. He has been anointed to preach good news to the poor. We know this passage well, don't we? He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And this, of course, is a quote from Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And it's a well-known passage for first century Jews too. And it's a passage that for them would herald, would hold out the hope of a coming Messiah who would preach good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, um, recovery of sight, uh, release the oppressed. And of course, they've been under some or other form of occupation for, uh, there's a gap there of about 100 years where they aren't, but for the rest, for five, six, seven hundred years, depends on which part of Israel you live in. And um, 
20 to 25% of the empire is a slave uh, at, at the time of the first century. And so there's a great sense of hope and anticipation that this day would kind of come. Now, this is a much referred to passage in contemporary Christianity. And there's one school in particular that loves to go to this passage. And they're kind of like the, um, the social justice Christians. And what they find in this passage is that Jesus is for the poor. Jesus preaches good news to the poor. He's proclaiming freedom, recovery of sight. And they are drawn to the times in Jesus' ministry where he's healing people, where he's caring for people, where he's reaching out to women of ill repute and saying, you know, if other people aren't judging you, I'm not going to judge you. Um, they love to run to some other similar passages, like, for instance, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, when you visited me in prison, when you clothed me, when you cared for me. And they want to emphasize that Jesus' ministry is a, is a caring ministry. It's an inclusive ministry. And they want you to practice that same type of ministry as Jesus does and we can kind of love people into the kingdom by being as caring and as um, embracing as what Jesus is and this is at the essence of his ministry and you want to say there's actually these themes here in this passage uh, that, that's uh, legitimate there are those who want to push back on that and say actually that's kind of unbalanced uh, I remember when we uh, studied this passage at uh, Moore College, actually, and our lecturer uh, said, well, the poor in Luke are actually in the Sermon on the Mount called the poor in spirit. So it's not so much that Jesus is necessarily for the financially poor, but rather Jesus is for those who are the opposite of self-righteous, who recognize that they can't somehow save themselves, that they are poor in terms of their ability to keep the law or to redeem themselves, or you know they're not like the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law. Uh, Jesus is for the opposite of that. Th those are the poor that Jesus gravitates towards and who gravitate towards Jesus. And then they will read on this approach and they will say... Uh, in other words, this is somewhat metaphorical. So, for instance, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. How many prisoners does Jesus actually free in the Gospels? And the answer is none. Now, maybe he did it somewhere else that's not recorded in the Gospels, but if Jesus was meant to fulfill this passage in a literal way, wouldn't the gospel writers have given an account of Jesus freeing prisoners? But, but that's not... The point is that this second position will hold, this more kind of um, conservative evangelical position, is that it's a metaphorical freedom for those who are prisoners to sin, who are enslaved by greed or by selfishness, or who are enslaved by attempting to save themselves by obeying the law. It's that kind of oppression by sin and by the legalism that can come through a misreading of the law and by the death that comes from sin 
That's what Jesus frees people from. And it's a metaphorical freedom. And, and the recovery of sight for the blind, this conservative evangelical approach will say, yes, Jesus heals people, but there's usually a combination of uh, a physical and a spiritual blindness so that people can actually see Jesus for who he is on the other side of being healed. And then this, pass, this approach will say, and, and notice what comes first, Jesus is preaching. Jesus' ministry is primarily a ministry of preaching. So if we stay in Luke chapter 4, and we've got the equivalent in Mark chapter 1, what happens later that day is that uh, Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, and uh, lots of people hear about it, and they bring all the sick. Uh, Jesus withdraws to a solitary place to pray, and then the disciples come and gather him and say, hey, you got a crowd. This is kind of working. Come back. Let's get this movement. Let's bring this kingdom in. And Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns also, because that's what I have sent. That's why I was sent. In other words, the conservative evangelical approach emphasizes the preaching and the gospel ministry of Jesus. And Goldsworthy puts it like this. He says, we can't confuse the gospel with the consequences of the gospel. And the consequences of the gospel are that we ought to care for the poor and we ought to look out for the prisoners and we ought to care for the blind um, and we ought to, if we can, heal them, whether that's through medicine or um, through prayer and faith healings. Um, and we ought to be proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. What does that phrase mean to a first century audience? It's an Old Testament hope. Every seven years, uh, there's some freedoms that comes for those who've been enslaved. And then every seven times seven years, every 49th year or 50th year, there's this great year of jubilee where um, all slaves are freed. And people who owned land and took out a loan against their land and kind of had to forfeit their land, the land goes back to their family. It's a kind of a reset moment where... People are liberated and things are returned to the right way that they ought to be. And everyone is kind of cared for and given access to the capacity to generate an income. And, um, and, and Jesus is, in some sense, resetting the old covenant in the new covenant and saying, the big reset moment has kind of come in my life, death, and resurrection. And that would be the emphasis of the conservative evangelical. So, who's right? Uh, uh, is the social justice approach true? Is the conservative evangelical approach true? Well, to be honest, I want to push back on both. Um, to say that Jesus comes primarily to preach and the healings are secondary, that's problematic. So if we read in Luke 4 that Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom and that's why I've come, it sounds as if Jesus thinks he's made a mistake by doing too many healings because people get caught up in the miracles and uh, what, they, what he needs to do more is focus on the preaching because that's what's more important. And what happens in both Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel the following day? Well, Jesus goes to another town. And what's the first thing he does? He heals another person. 
And what's the consequence of him healing another person? It's at the end of that day, that town is packed and he can't preach and he's overwhelmed and he withdraws to a lonely place and prays. So to set the two in opposition, to use Goldsworthy's phrase, to imagine that we can separate the gospel from the consequences of the gospel, for me, does not parallel what we see in Jesus' public ministry. We see the two come together in ways that we happen to separate at this moment in church history, but I don't see that separation in the life or the ministry of Jesus. In fact, I'm reading a book by Stuart Piggin at the moment about the history of evangelicalism in Australia, and Stuart Piggin argues that it's not there present in the first Sydney evangelicals either. My view is that what Jesus is saying here is that, yes, he does have a ministry to the poor, but the financially poor are more inclined to be in touch with the fact that they are poor in spirit. My phrase for that would be people in disruption are more conscious of their need for an alternate solution other than their current one and themselves, and they're more open to reaching out to God. And Jesus is saying, I'm uh, coming and I'm speaking to people who are conscious that they are poor, who are conscious that they are enslaved, who are conscious that they need freedom, that they need a reset moment in their life, and I come with a message of hope, and of light, there's new uh, sight for those who are blind. And I come with a message of freedom and a message of forgiveness. And I come with good news. I come with the gospel. Um, and that is what Jesus says. Well, I think we've dwelt enough with that. Let's move on. Jesus rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant and sits down. So in the first century, what happens is that you sit when you preach. We're not quite sure why. Uh, perhaps it's the consequence of an Old Testament phrase where you sit in the seat of Moses and given that the first five books of the Old Testament are written by Moses, perhaps it's a consequence or an implication or an acknowledgement of uh, Moses' priority in the Old Testament. But whatever case, Jesus sits and is taking on the authority of a teacher in doing so. And what does Jesus say? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jamie made some helpful observations last week. Not only does Jesus stand up and say, you know, oh, Hillel thinks this passage means this, and Shammai thinks this passage. Jesus goes well beyond that and says, truly, I say to you, now he goes beyond that even further. And says, actually, I'm the fulfillment. This stuff points not to Moses, but actually to me. Now, we read in verse 22, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. I think Jesus says more than just that. Uh, there's, there's probably a, a sermon, a monologue that goes on for quite some time and Luke hasn't recorded that for us. And Luke doesn't do that in the book of Acts either. He summarizes the sermons of Paul um, and we just kind of get, you know, one, two liners. We, we don't 
know, and we apparently don't need to know the entire content of Jesus' sermon. It's not what's relevant. If it was, the Spirit would have inspired and kept it for us. But we do appreciate that the people were amazed at the gracious words of Jesus. Now remember, this is his home village. These are the people who would have played hide and seek with Jesus behind the vineyard rock walls. These are the people who would have stomped on grapes and olives with Jesus and made wine and olive oil. Um, these are the people who would have sat in classes midweek in the synagogue learning to read and write and memorize the law. And their experience of Jesus would have been that he was perhaps special but not super amazing. right? Because what do they say here? Isn't this Joseph's son. Now we've dealt with the equivalent passage in Mark's gospel where Jesus is called a carpenter or a builder um, and Mary's son. Now Luke tells us they're also saying he's Joseph's son. In other words, when we read the gospels, we're praying to saying, oh, no, 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 he's not Joseph's son. He's, he's um, incarnate of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and, and, and there's something special about him from his birth. But in the mind of the people of Nazareth, Joseph is his dad. And not just his kind of like uh, they live in the same house, but we would assume they think he's his biological dad and there's nothing extra special about Jesus. And that's partially why they're amazed. Here's this guy who seems to have been pretty normal for 30 years and now he rocks back into town and can perform miracles and teaches with an authority and a persuasiveness that just impresses them. Fascinating stuff. Well, what happens? What happens to these people who are amazed by Jesus' teaching? Not what we might expect. In fact, on the contrary, they try and throw him off a cliff in a minute. Let's read on. Verse 23. Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did all in Capernaum. They're amazed by his teaching and they're kind of like the Jews waiting for a miracle. The Jews are into signs and miracles. They're impressed by those. Um, but uh, th that's not enough. Um, they're kind of um, wanting more, but for them the jury is still out. As amazed, as intrigued as they are, they're not yet signed up disciples and followers of Jesus. And so Jesus pushes the envelope. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet. Now Jesus is calling himself a prophet. So far, Jesus has been behaving like a rabbi with disciples. Um, in John's gospel, we get a lot more. We get that he's light. We get that he's the word. We get that he's um, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, we get that he's living water. Um, now, Jesus is also saying, I'm a prophet. I have a prophetic ministry. And what happens to the prophets in the Old Testament? They come and they bring the words of God. And by and large, Israel rejects them and persecutes them. And that's going to give us a clue about where this is going to go. 
No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Not just in his hometown of birth, not just Nazareth, but actually in mostly all of Israel. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. So remember Elijah, showdown on Mount Carmel, goes out, there's uh, three and a half years of famine, and he goes where? Out of Israel. And, and there's a needy widow. And he provides and cares for her. And Jesus' point is that there were many in Israel who had need. Many widows. Wow, doesn't this sit in tension with where we just were? Jesus doesn't care for all the widows. That would be a misread of that quote of um, Isaiah 61. But Jesus cares for this one particular widow. Likewise, Jesus says, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. And yet one of them was only cleansed, Naaman the Syrian. So what Jesus is saying is that this uh, blessing that comes from uh, the Messiah, the one who fulfills this jubilee year, this year of freedom, this overcoming oppression, not everyone will accept it. And in fact, it has consequences beyond just Israel. God's graciousness extends to Gentiles. So it's likely that you hometown people are going to reject this new covenant blessing, but it will extend to Gentiles as it did in the Old Testament. And that upsets the locals. That pushes their buttons. And what do they do? All the people were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of a hill in order to throw him over the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Fascinating, isn't it? Jesus teaches amazing things. He performs miracles. But like so many prophets... His message is ultimately rejected and they turn on him and they want to kill him. That is the pattern of how Jesus is received at Nazareth. It's the pattern of how the, the Messiah, who, the word who comes in the flesh, will be received and rejected by most of Israel. And it will be the pattern of the gospel going out across much of history. Well, we've come to the end of Jesus' year of inauguration. This moment marks a transition. And so let me just pull together the themes of what we've seen, not just in today's passage, but over this past five weeks. Let me remind you where we've been. Jesus lives as a pretty normal guy for 30-odd years. And then he's baptized and he's anointed by the Spirit. And God announces that this is my son. And this marks a turning, a transition. And it seems to be a transition not in what Jesus does, but also in terms of his self-understanding and his calling. And then now that it's, it's revealed, now that he's outed as the son of God, 
He uh, has a showdown with the desert, in the desert with Satan. Um, comes out of there. Uh, there's a miracle uh, at, at Cana. Um, we didn't look at that, but it's about new covenant blessing. Uh, he calls some disciples. He then makes a trip down south uh, and he goes to the temple, cleanses the temple. It's about saying, I'm the place where you'll meet God, where you will find forgiveness, where you'll find um, connection with God. You'll pray through me and speak directly to God. Um, he talks with Nicodemus who says, you know, oh, you're amazing. Uh, your power's coming from somewhere. And Jesus says, I'm not just some rabbi. You've actually got to be born again of the Spirit, um, not just be born a Jew. Uh, and then he travels back up north, goes through Samaria on the way, and in Sychar has the incident with the Samaritan woman. Then, as we've heard today uh, and last week, there's a whole bunch of teaching and healings around Gaz uh, Galilee. At the end of the year of inauguration, he comes back to his hometown, and there's a sense in which he is rejected by his own in his birth city of origin. And now he launches into what will be his second year of ministry, the year of popularity. We'll deal with that sometime next year. But what are the take-homes? What are the applications from what we've seen in the year of inauguration? Let me make four very briefly. Firstly, the fact that the word comes in the flesh. That's radical. It's radical for first century Greeks. It's radical for first century Jews. And it's radical across all of human history. And as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, it's so radical that that is why Christians uniquely affirm that all humans are made in God's image. That all human life is dignified that in the very process of God becoming flesh, he sanctifies the human condition. All life is special. A Samaritan woman is special. A widow is special. Um, women are special. Uh, if we were to talk in today's language, um, kids on the spectrum are special. Old people are special. Everyone is special. Why? Because God said... The human condition is a sanctified condition. People bear my image and they have the capacity to reflect my image. And Jesus becoming a person says the human life is a sacred thing. All human life is precious. Secondly, Jesus does three years of public ministry, but 30 years of pretty normal life. And his townsfolk say, hey, he's just Joseph's son. He's just Mary's son. He's a carpenter. He's got some brothers and sisters. Uh, and I want to say to you, Jesus was God in the flesh in the 30-odd years too. And if you sometimes think to yourself, you know what, my life is really ordinary and there's nothing special about my life. I'm just kind of going to work and I'm a delivery person or I'm a cleaner or I'm a, um, in retail or I'm a school teacher. I, you know, I, I'm not, I, I don't heal anybody. I don't preach. I don't get to stand up the front and read the Bible. And I want to say, Jesus loved and honored God and lived well for 30 years just doing the ordinary. 
And whatever you do, you can do the same. There's nothing plain Jane about the ordinary because Jesus also, in some ways, sanctifies the ordinary by being an average first century Jew who practices a trade, is part of a family, part of a community, and honours God in the way that he does that. That's my second point. Third point. As impressive as Jesus' teachings are, as his miracles are, not everybody's going to accept him. Sometimes I, I hear Christians kind of saying, you know, if we could just run another crusade, if we could just have a healing in our midst, if people could see the power of God, if people could understand. The Jews got to see God in all his glory and yet most rejected him. There is a spiritual blindness. Satan shut their eyes and their ears so that they couldn't see and hear. And that still happens today. We're still in that type of a spiritual battle. Fourth, the moment of Jesus' baptism, where the Spirit comes and empowers him, where God declares him to be his son, is a moment of transition in Jesus' life. And you know what? It is in yours and mine too. Paul marvels that we are called sons of God. The same title as Jesus. In a slightly lesser sense, but there's connections there. We are empowered by the same Spirit and our self-understanding on the other side of being filled with the Spirit and conscious that we are sons of God called to bear witness to him or to be radical as it is for Jesus. And last, you get the sense as you focus on the first and on the second year of Jesus' life that Jesus' way of expressing humanity in the flesh it's an example for us to follow. I think too often we want to race to the last week of Jesus' life and we're versed in talking and reflecting upon the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection and absolutely that's critical, it's central to our faith. But as we're dwelling in the first year or two of Jesus' life, there is also this sense that the way Jesus expresses what it means to be a human, a son of God or a daughter, um, someone who expresses, reflects, bears, carries God's image in the way that they live out everyday life, in the way that they care for the poor, in the way that they proclaim freedom, in the way that they um, announce the good news of who, who uh, God is. We're called to do the same. Jesus is not just some guy to be amazed at and to say, thank you that you've forgiven my sins. He's actually someone to follow and to entrust yourself to and say, I will find life being your disciple. Let me pray for us. 
Jesus, as we've kind of slowed down for this past five weeks and just encountered you in the flesh, we see what it means to be a human being. And in the first instance, we want to repent for when we have not lived as we ought to. When, God, we have not reflected your greatness. When we have not been salt and light. We also want to ask for an empowering of the Spirit, for an internal transformation so that we can live. We want to pray that we might understand ourselves to be first and foremost sons of God called to reflect God. I'm not about me expressing me but I'm about being a child of God who reflects God. Help us to have that sort of an understanding as to who we are. And God, that may bring opposition like it brought for Jesus, but there's a greater calling and a greater purpose rather than just avoiding opposition. We're part of the breaking in of your kingdom as we're disciples and followers of Jesus. And that's something we want to live for. Spirit, empower us to live that type of life, we pray. For your glory, God. Amen.